0: Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. This week, we hosted a panel on voting rights and the Constitution today. The panelists discussed Georgia's new voting law, the election reform law recently passed by the House and currently being debated in the Senate, and more. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started.
1: Welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's convening of America's Town Hall. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of this wonderful institution, Uh, and let us uh, inspire ourselves for the learning ahead by reciting together the National Constitution Center's mission statement. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. We will take questions throughout the show today, so put your questions in the Q&A box. I'll introduce them as I can, and I want to say how uh, excited we are to present today's program with support from the Stavros Niarchos Foundation. The show is presented in partnership with the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University and as part of our ongoing series of conversations about how to restore the guardrails of American democracy. I will now uh, briefly introduce our distinguished panelists and then we will uh, begin. Ted Johnson is Senior Fellow and Director of the Fellows Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Uh, he is also a retired commander in the U.S. Navy and has served as a military professor at the U.S. Naval War College and has written widely. Uh, Rich Lowry is editor of National Review. He writes for Politico, a regular panelist on Meet the Press and other national shows and the author of The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United and Free, Lincoln Unbound, How an Ambitious Young Rail Splitter Saved the American Dream and How We Can Do It Again and the New York Times bestseller Legacy, Paying the Price for the Clinton Years. Ilya Shapiro is vice president of the Cato Institute where he directs the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and is publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. I think he's just also gotten a promotion at Cato to be a vice president. Congratulations, Ilya. He's a long standing friend of the NCC and appears frequently on our We the People podcast. He's the author of the new book, Supreme Disorder Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court, and many other books. Uh, and Kimberly Whaley is professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She is the author of the bestseller, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, How to Read the Constitution and Why, and How to Think Like a Lawyer. She's a contributor for BBC World News and uh, has practiced before the U.S. Supreme Court. Thank you so much for joining Ted Johnson, Rich Lowry, Ilya Shapiro, and Kim Whaley. Now, friends, I would like our important conversation today to be a constitutional conversation rather than a political one. In other words, I'm going to ask each of you about the bills that are pending um, in legislatures across the country. Uh, Republicans uh, describe them as means to uh, ensure voter integrity. Democrats uh, denounce them as forms of voter suppression. We are going to debate not whether they are a good idea politically or not, but whether they comport with the Constitution and with the Voting Rights Act, um, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, and I am very eager for your thoughts on both the legality and constitutionality of those pending voter bills, as well as HR1 pending in the House, which would provide federal uh, provisions for broad swaths of election law. Ilya, I'm going to ask you to start off because you filed briefs in some of these cases. This is a very complicated area of law, and it involves um, educating our friends who are watching about the difference between Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, that provision that the Supreme Court struck down in 2013 that had said that states that had previously discriminated in voting had to get approval from the federal government before they could change their voting provisions. Now that that provision is struck down, the remaining provision of the Uh, Voting Rights Act that remains available for challenge is section two, which prohibits changes that make it harder for minorities to elect representatives of their choice and allows uh, people to challenge laws that have discriminatory effects, even though they don't have discriminatory intent. Now, that's a mouthful. And I'm going to now ask you to tell us what are some of the most controversial provisions of the Georgia law? And might any of them be challenged as violating section two of the Voting Rights Act as interpreted by the Supreme Court. Thanks,
2: Jeff, and good to be with you uh, yet again. I have uh, the cover story in the latest uh, Washington Examiner magazine that goes into uh, a a lot of uh, this stuff. Um just uh, one point on what you said, with Supreme Court in 2013, the Shelby County case disabled the uh, coverage formula, that is, which jurisdictions are subject to Section 5's preclearance requirements, because the Congress had not updated uh, that formula uh, in, in 40 years, uh, given changes on the ground. And so in theory, Congress could pass. In fact, part of H.R. Uh, 1, which we'll get into, uh, does update that coverage formula to try to uh, reoperationalize the pre-clearance re- requirement of Section 5. But Section 5 was only meant to be a temporary emergency uh, provision while we had actual Jim Crow, not this, uh, you know, feigned Jim Crow that that, that uh, I think politicians irresponsibly talk about now. Um, while we had actual Jim Crow, we needed extraordinary kind of uh, change in, in our constitutional practice. Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is the key, is the uh, uh, is the gemstone of it and that uh, prohibits voting practices or procedures that discriminate on the basis of race color or membership in one of the language minority groups uh, identified uh, elsewhere. Uh, now, so that raises the question what does it mean to discriminate based on race color etc and there's actually a pending Supreme Court case called Brnovich versus uh, Democratic National Commission, uh, about what standards courts to, uh, are to apply. Because for the longest time, when Section 5 was operational, uh, Section 2 claims were almost entirely about redistricting. And when uh, uh, drawing districts would uh, detract from racial minorities' ability to choose candidates uh, uh, that, that they wanted in the election. This is different. And so the question is, in, in, in the Georgia law, in, in others that, that may be challenged, is whether uh, having 17 rather than 20 days of early voting is a violation of section two, or whether having you know the hours be 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. rather than 9 a.m. to 8 p.m., or whether having only a certain number of drop boxes for absentee or uh, mailed ballots, whether that's somehow a restriction. You can tell by my skeptical tone that I don't think any of this even comes close to being a colorable uh, section two claim, whether in Georgia uh, or elsewhere, in terms of these latest laws uh, that are being passed. because. This isn't simply a narrative of voting rights versus voting suppression uh, or or ballot integrity versus uh, voting suppression. I think both of those are overheated, uh, kind of a dispute between elites. Most people find it fairly uh, straightforward to vote. You register, you pick up your ballot, you mark your ballot, you deposit it somewhere, it gets counted. The devil, of course, is in the details, and different states can and do historically uh, do these processes in different ways that's what the constitution allows and so georgia uh, after the uh kind of tumultuous free-for-all of the covid uh, 2020 elections a lot of states are changing their election laws in in various ways to deal with to standardize the temporary expansions uh due to the the large number of mail-ins to change the to, to, to codify the rules over absentee ballots and and what have you so I don't know how much the Georgia specifics actually matter. They have 17 days of early voting. You, there's a 67-day window for requesting uh, an absentee and no-fault absentee ballot. Uh, you have to write your uh, state ID or driver's license or social security number on the ballot so that they can verify these things. And the, uh, the, the drop boxes are where the, the polling locations are. Uh, On its face, that doesn't seem racially discriminatory. Moreover, in places where perhaps you've seen around Metro Atlanta, where there are long lines, uh, uh, the law provides that polling locations that face these long lines have to adapt and add more locations for future uh, elections, uh, things like that. I mean, I don't think there's a platonic ideal uh, number of early voting hours or days or anything like this. Delaware, President Biden's own Delaware, hasn't had early voting. That goes into effect Uh, next year. There are six states that have no early voting and they're all over the place. There's no common thread to them. So, I mean, look, uh, states uh, generally, uh, including Georgia, including Iowa, including blue states, uh, they're they're dealing with kind of a a changing um, uh, terrain. And the real issue is we have low uh, confidence in uh, in ballot integrity, in the security of the vote. Um, Neither side trusts each other. And so states are trying to, you know, standardize and make clear what the rules of the game on the ground are. Uh, I think the the Georgia debate uh, ha- has been skewed uh, in many ways, but this is really a policy debate: how best to administer elections. Uh, this is not trying to, I don't know, take away souls to the polls on, on Sundays or some of these other things, uh, not provide water to voters, some of these myths that that, that that have gotten around. So I don't think any of these laws, however the Supreme Court decides uh, this case, uh, this term, the, the Burnovich case out of Arizona, uh, I don't think the Georgia laws or others that have been kind of caught up uh, in the latest debate are uh, even coming close to being uh, a violation of the Voting Rights Act.
1: Thank you very much for that uh, introduction to this uh, complicated and important question. Ted, as Ilya says, the Brnovich case seems on point here. Uh, That case involves a challenge to two Arizona laws. One bars the counting of provisional ballots cast in the wrong precinct, and the other bars the collection of absentee ballots by anyone other than a family member or caregiver. The court does seem primed to uphold those provisions, but Justice Kagan, during the argument, quizzed the Republican lawyers with a series of hypotheticals that sounded a lot like the Georgia law. Suppose Justice Kagan said a state has had two weeks of early voting and then the state decides it's going to get rid of Sunday voting. And suppose the evidence is that black voters cast their ballots on Sunday 10 times more than the white voters. Is that system equally open? She asked. The lawyer, Mike Carvin said, I think it would be because Sunday is the day we traditionally close government offices. But Kagan was not convinced. And she said states don't usually have Saturday hours early but they do for early voting. So Justice Kagan um, seemed to think that some of these early voting provisions might violate section two of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Do you agree and can you help our friends in the audience explain what is the argument that these provisions uh, in Georgia and Arizona and elsewhere do violate section two of the Voting Rights Act?
0: Yeah, a great question. And again, thanks for, for having me here. So a, a couple of things here. One is, you know, the elections clause basically says that states get to run the elections the way they see fit. And as long as they sort of adhere to the Constitution and aren't, you know, discriminating against folks um, and, and violating their, their 15th Amendment rights, for example, then um, they can do pretty much what they want to. And this gives us a patchwork of laws that um, where depending on where you live will dictate how you vote, how you register to vote, whether you can vote or not. you know, in Maine and Vermont, prisoners can vote. But in states like uh, you know Virginia until recently, um, you know, if you had a felony conviction, you were pretty much done unless you got pardoned by the governor. In fact, the governor still has to sign some paperwork. So there, there isn't an evenness of voting across the country, and it's intentional. I mean, it's in the Constitution that states get to make these decisions. But the question is, when states make decisions that harm particular groups more than others, what is the role of the federal government to provide oversight? For quite a while, the Voting Rights Act of 65 helped guide us. But as now some of the sections are being picked apart, and some being ruled unconstitutional, we've got to find some new guardrails on how we operate and what what's considered fair and what is uh what's considered to be in pro-democracy uh positions you know to facilitate our participation in in our democracy so the question at the heart at least as i see it um of the 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 supreme court case and that puts georgia's voting law uh, squarely in its sights is whether the disparate impact framework it can be applied to voting rights. We know disparate impact can be applied to housing and to labor law. The Supreme Court recently upheld disparate impact when thinking about housing. What disparate impact says, uh, basically, and again, I'm not, I'm not a, a legal expert here, but it basically says that if a policy or or a regulation or some some way of conducting business um, discriminates against a group, even if that discrimination isn't intentional, then that policy, regulation, whatever, needs to be revisited. And um, so intent doesn't matter in discrimin- in uh, disparate impact in ways that it does in other parts. So when we look at Section 2, um, and as Ilya said, this is a question about um, when we say that it's Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act prohibits voting practices or procedures that discriminate, do we mean intentionally discriminate? Meaning we have people in the back room saying, we don't want black people to vote, let's figure out how they vote and stop that. Or does it mean that discrimination results based on the policy put in place? And that's the question before the Supreme Court. If it's the former, everyone agrees that that's not acceptable. If you are intentionally discriminating against groups, you can't do that. Uh, Especially if if they're a protected class like a racial ethnic group. If discrimination is the result of a set of policies or laws or regulations put forward, um, can the government intervene to stop the resultant discrimination? And that is what the, that is the disparate impact question around voting rights that the Supreme Court will determine. And this, I think, is what Kagan was getting at with the voting rights uh, law in Georgia. If they're passing a set of things ostensibly in, in, as a way to protect uh, against voter fraud, and the things they're passing are, are perceived or, or um, proven based on historical data to have or to look like they will have a disproportionate impact on certain groups of voters, should the Section Two of the Voting Rights Act prohibit those actions from being put in place? That's the question. I do think for something, a a basic duty of citizenship, that we should err on the side of voter protection here, and if a set of laws are put in place to stop a thing, voter fraud, that is not widespread and has an impact on groups that might complicate their access to the ballot, um, in order, in the name of voter, fraud, in the name of preventing voter fraud, then I think we should err on the fa- on the side of the group seeking access to the ballot, and not on the side of security looking to prevent things that are are very rare in their occurrence anyway. Um, if this is about efficiencies, if this is about cost-cutting measures fine um, but let's do it in a way that doesn't complicate access to the ballot for one group over another uh, and 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 that's uh that's what I think is at the heart of both the controversy around the Georgia law and the Supreme Court case the last thing I'll say and I, I want to agree with Elio on this point this is not 1900 Jim Crow this is not 1950s Jim Crow this is not slavery all over again by a new name um, I think when we make those kinds of comparisons we uh, degrade the suffering and the anti-democratic and liberal impulses of previous generations and, and and for the for sort of exaggeration for the sake of effect to make our point today. What we're facing today is a... a a debate about whether or not it should be easier for people to vote and err on the side of democracy or whether um, we should make it a little bit more difficult and err on the side of security. This is not about uh, making people take um, literacy tests and and pass grandfather clauses before we we allow them to vote. So I do think it's not helpful to make those comparisons.
1: Thank you so much uh, for uh, joining the issue so well and for helping us understand that the central legal debate before the Supreme Court is how we identify laws that have discriminatory effects and make it harder for minorities uh, to vote uh, without explicit discriminatory intent. Rich, um, at least one justice on the court, Justice Thomas, suggests that Section 2 itself might be unconstitutional because it requires uh, legislatures to be race conscious in drawing districts, and that violates the colorblindness requirements of the Constitution. And in addition to that, you and a uh, piece about the uh, Georgia law take issue with the claim of Democrats that the Shelby County decision in 2013, which ended uh, pre-clearance requirements um in fact, would lead to uh, voter suppression. You note a paper by a PhD candidate at the University of Oregon, which concludes the removal of preclearance requirements did not significantly reduce the relative turnout of eligible Black voters. So tell us, tell our friends, do you agree with Justice Thomas or not that Section 2 is unconstitutional? And tell us more about why you think that striking down Section 5 did not reduce African-American voter turnout.
3: Well, the first I have not thought extensively about, so I'll take a, a polite pass if you don't mind on, on that one, Jeff, I, on the, the, the broader question of the Georgia law and the, the effects these sort of laws have, they, the idea that uh, what Georgia has done is, is voter suppression is completely wrong. One, if you just look at the provisions, I mean, it expands expands early voting hours in a lot of rural uh, districts. It uh, deals with a number of problems that Stacey Abrams has complained about in the Georgia electoral system for a long time. She's complained about provisional balance not necessarily being counted. Well, the reason why a lot of people in Georgia end up voting provisionally is they go to the wrong precinct. So what the Georgia law says is if you show up the wrong precinct prior to 5 p.m., go to the right precinct and vote. If you can't go to the right precinct because it's too late after 5 p.m., then you sign an affidavit saying you can't get to the right precinct and then you vote, but this is this is an attempt to take care of a problem. The the uh, the tighter deadline on requesting an absentee ballot is driven by the fact that if you request an absentee ballot uh, less than 10 days before the election, I think it is, you're, you're very unlikely to return your ballot on time, or at least there's there's a much higher chance your ballot isn't going to arrive on time. So that's an attempt to get people to request ballots in a timely manner, which means they can actually. Uh, vote those um, ballots the um, signature match provision is something that Stacey Abrams has complained a lot about Uh, that's done away with on absentee ballots you know it's no longer dependent on the signature you write your driver's license number so it removes all subjectivity um, with when you're evaluating whether the 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 ballot is actually voted by the person who uh, is supposed to be voting it so I, I think the Georgia law has has been misunderstood and in many cases smeared. And there's just, there's no way one fewer person in Georgia is going to vote because of this law. And I I think the the research shows the paper you mentioned, Jeff, about the the Voting Rights Act. Uh, There's also been papers about strict voter ID law. It it tends to show that these changes don't affect turnout. And it's my belief that um, an extreme view of uh, a convenience theory of voting, which is what Folks like Stacey Abrams have, which basically says if it's the slightest bit more inconvenient to vote, people in droves aren't going to vote. And I don't think that's true. And uh, it's the, the threshold question for whether someone's going to vote or not is whether there's they're motivated, whether they're interested. And if they are, turn up is going to go up no matter what the rules are. There's a fascinating study of the 2020 election that showed it didn't matter whether states had no excuse absentee balloting or did when it came to turnout. Turnout went up everywhere because everyone was interested in this last presidential election. And the authors of the study, Jeff, and I'll just conclude with this, they used Texas as a, as a really interesting test case here because in Texas, there's no excuse to absentee vote, voting for people 65 and older. So if you adhere to the convenience theory of voting, there should have been an enormous drop off uh, turnout among 64 year olds, right? Because they're suppressed. They're excluded. They can't vote no excuse absentee where people one year older uh, than they are can. But in fact, there is no difference in turnout whatsoever between 65 year olds and 64 year olds in Texas because this convenience theory uh, it is basically flawed within limits. Obviously, you don't want people standing in line for 10 hours. That's going to discourage people. And it was outrageous that that was happening in the, in the primaries in Georgia and places like Fulton County last year. And again, the Georgia law attempts to um, uh, alleviate that problem. It says if you, ha- I believe the provision is if there's a, a line at the time of the closing of the poll that lasts more than an hour, that locality needs to uh, split up that precinct to make it smaller and or add equipment or new people, uh, new poll workers to to get the the time of voting down. So there are things in the Georgia law that would have been a mistake, certainly targeting Sunday voting, that that would have been um, uh, re- legitimately uh, challenged and perhaps t- thrown out by the court if it ever got there, but that was abandoned. And th- this law I think is entirely defensible on the merits and probably uh, I-, I believe on the margins makes the the voting system in Georgia better. Thank you uh, very much for
1: all that. Uh, Kim, what is your response to Rich's claims, including the the last one, which he clearly said, uh, far from making the system worse, the law makes it better. And uh, in particular, you've uh, criticized the Supreme Court's 2013 Shelby County uh, decision, saying when the court scrapped Congress's spectacularly successful legislative fix to the suppression nonsense, uh, it took the Department of Justice out of the business of preclearance. Uh, So tell us why you disagree, presumably, with his analysis of the effects of striking down section five. And then tell us about the balancing test that you've noted called the Anderson Burdick Test, which gives courts discretion to determine when a law restricting voting is too burdensome. You've written that because of the test's inherent subjectivity, bogus state claims of voter fraud, and enhanced electoral activity, uh, divorced from actual empirical data, operate to justify in judges' minds laws that conflate ballot access for no good reason. So in other words, uh, do you believe that if section two and section five are not available to the courts, this balancing test might end up striking down aspects of the Georgia law or not?
4: Yeah, well, thanks for that, Jeff. Um, and as a, I know you're a former law professor as well. I'll, I'm going to start with first principles because I can't help myself. Um, and so, I, for those who this is repetitive, forgive me. Uh, but the Constitution, the original Constitution, doesn't say anything about an affirmative right to vote. Um, and that's really important when it comes to how the Supreme Court makes decisions about what to do about any any ballot access measure, and we don't need to name it anything. But essentially, uh, in most cases involving the Constitution, the Supreme Court will balance things and say, we've got this interest on one hand and this interest on the other. When it comes to police reform, we have the need for security in our streets against individual rights to be free from police brutality. How do we strike that balance? For voting rights, because there's no affirmative right to vote in the constitution, there's this balancing test that essentially doesn't, in my mind, hold up the right to vote as as high as it might be in terms of how much it needs to be weighted because it's not affirmatively in the constitution. Framers couldn't decide on it, left it to the states as was mentioned earlier by Ted. So what does the the constitution say affirmatively? The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature. So the legislature uh of the states determines access to the ballot but the congress may at any time by lawmaker alter such regulations so congress does have power to make national voting rules for federal elections and that trickles down to states that's why we have motor voter registration you can go to a federal you can uh, you know, get get your driver's license and vote and and uh, register to vote. That's a federal law, so that's what we're talking about. You mentioned HR one, massive package out of the Supreme uh, out of Congress right now that's pending, past the House. We also have HR four, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which is designed to fix the Shelby County county situation. So let me back up a minute from there. So unlike other Western democracies, we're an opt-in system. We have to prove our eligibility to vote. And as Rich said, said indicated, we have to show up to the polls and show a desire that we want to vote. Only about 50% in off presidential years of Americans vote. Uh, I think it was 66% in the last presidential election. So about 40% of us just don't go to the polls. And I think a big piece of that is education. Um, so, so, But historically, it was only white, rich, men who could actually vote and so when we have amendments to the constitution we've enlarged that tent the 15th amendment allowed african-american males to vote said you can't discriminate on the basis of of race um a lot of states got cute around that anyway you mentioned poll taxes someone did mention counting the bubbles in a bar of soap reciting the declaration of independence these arbitrary barriers to voting in 1965 congress came in and said we're not going to let you and run around the 15th amendment anymore we're going to pass the Voting Rights Act. Two key provisions. Section 5, which basically said states that have a history of doing these maneuvers have to get what's called preclearance. They've got to get it cleared by the Justice Department before we're going to allow you to, say, impose a new restriction on ID, for example. Um, the, the, The Congress... Uh, basically uh, um, affirmed that or continued that law in 1970, 1975, 1982, and 2006 by wide bipartisan majority. So when you think about the separation of powers, where is the role of the people? The role of the people is not in the courts because federal judges are appointed and they're there for life. They're not elected. It should be in the Congress. My critique of Shelby County in, tw- in the 2013 decision, basically gutting that preclearance part of 2015, is that the United States Congress multiple times said this is what the people want. And I think from a conservative standpoint, the Supreme Court should stay out of that unless there's some blatant violation of the Constitution, which there was not um, with respect to Section 5. But because Section 5 is gone, and basically the court said, Congress come back with updated numbers. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously in dissent said, listen, it's working so well um, that, you know, it's kind of like saying I'm going to get rid of my umbrella because it's doing such a great job keeping me dry in the storm. And to Rich's point, I just want to quote from the uh, Campaign Legal uh, Center, another nonpartisan um, voting and election law uh, source. It says in 1965, only five African-Americans in the U.S. House and Senate combined. Today, there are 48 Across all state and local offices 1965, fewer than 1,000 African-Americans in office, now over 10,000. Uh, black registration rates in former Confederate states went from 30 percentage points below white rates in 1960 to equal or greater by 2010. So statistically, even the conservatives on the court said Section 5 worked really well. Now we have Section 2. Section 2 is not... not Uh, The DOJ coming in and saying you've got to clear it by us, but regular people coming in and suing for discrimination as was indicated, what's going on in the Supreme Court, Congress didn't give a test, didn't give a test for what constitutes discrimination under Section 2. Is it just results of unequal access to the ballot? Is it lack of opportunity? Justice Kavanaugh mentioned that, but then even counsel for Arizona sort of agreed that it wouldn't be enough, it would be not sufficient opportunity if only the only ballot access sites were in country clubs, for example. So how do you define opportunity? Or do you have to show discriminatory intent? That would make it much harder to challenge these laws. There's nothing in the statute about intent. Congress needs to fix that. Um, The... H.R. 1, H.R. 4 is not going to get by a Republican filibuster. So if we want to fix voting rights, it should be done in the Congress. Republicans get it to need, a, need to get on board to fix some of these stuff and, and confine, confine the powers of the United States Supreme Court, And in, in, in my view on that. What's happening in Bernovich specifically, two laws. One is, as you mentioned, what people pejoratively call ballot harvesting, but it's essentially allowing a third party to collect ballots. This is particularly important on Indian reservations, Native American reservations, where they just don't have access to the postal service in the same way other people do. In um, a lot of poverty, they don't have cars, they don't have transportation. It just makes it much harder. That provision did not get by Section 5 preclearance. Just to be clear, it didn't get past the Justice Department under Section 5. So now the question, is its it, is it, uh, uh, is it violate section two? I don't know. Probably not because Congress didn't give a test for that. And I think that's probably the right outcome. I don't think courts should be making this stuff up. Um, The other piece is uh, whether if you vote in the wrong precinct, your whole ballot should be canceled even for the net, for the statewide races. So the idea is listen if you're not in your right precinct, you shouldn't be voting for those local uh, those local races, but why your whole ballot should be canceled. And that again is harder for low income people who might change their change their residence, they might move around, don't have the paperwork in place, that ballot gets canceled. At the end of the day, um this really comes down to how important it is for every American to balance in favor of access to the polls, we the people, not we the politicians, and this notion of fraud—it's just there's—it's empirically not there. Also, you know, in response to Justice Amy Coney Barrett's question of the Arizona Republican Party uh, uh, lawyer as to why we need this, he said, "quote Politics, Mr. Carvin, is a zero zero sum game. It's the difference between winning an election fifty to forty nine and losing. So it's not—we're not even having a debate about fraud." And I know um, Ilya mentioned the problem is low confidence in ballot integrity and security of the vote. No, that's not the problem. The problem are the lies around that myth. That is not empirically empirically a problem. Um, and I, I know that you asked, Jeff, that this be an, a nonpartisan discussion. In my view, access to the ballot and, and uh, you know, absent serious fraud or serious problems with electoral integrity, yes, fix that, we all should be circling around making it easier for people on an equal level to access the ballot. And I I think that's something that is not a partisan point of view, a blue versus red. If the Constitution is the bridge over a rushing river and that goes down and politicians start picking their voters, blue and red Americans, conservatives, uh, Democrats, Republicans, liberals all lose. That's my point of view on that.
1: Thank you very much, Kim, and thanks to all four of you for very thoughtful uh, elucidation of these extremely complicated uh, legal issues involving Section 5 and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, as well as a uh, good faith disagreement about the uh, substantive effects of uh, the Georgia law. Okay, now we're going to turn in the next round to another equally complicated and equally important big question, which is HR 1, the federal voting rights bill pending uh, in Congress, uh, passed the House, unlikely in practice to pass the Senate uh, without a, a filibuster change. Um, but I'm going to begin, Ilya, by asking you uh, what provisions, if any, you think violate the Constitution. Uh, There have been several constitutional clauses evoked to support H.R. 1. Uh, One of them, Kim mentioned, the election clause, uh, which says, as she quoted, that the times, places, and manners of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time, by law, make or alter such regulations except as to the place of choosing senators. There's a lot in H.R. 1, ranging from Uh, laws requiring states to set up independent redistricting commissions, to the uh, federal uh, allowance of mail-in ballots, to some campaign finance uh, reform, to enfranchising felons. Um, What, if any, provisions of H.R. 1 do you think violate the Constitution?
2: Sure, I'll I'll get to that in one second. But just to correct one thing that Kim said, um, I didn't say that voter fraud, massive voter fraud, is a, is a problem. That is a lie. That's uh, it's it's unfortunate. It does decrease public confidence, just like uh, the lie that there's massive uh, voter disenfranchisement or suppression is a lie that decreases voter confidence. So as I said, the problem is a lack of confidence in the integrity of the process. In uh, that everybody gets to vote and their votes are counted uh, on both sides. Um, it's the it's the public uh, uh, understanding of electoral processes and therefore the legitimacy of the governance that that produces. and again, that happens uh, on both sides and that's a problem. That's why the strongest uh, argument for something like voter ID, for example, isn't the prevention of fraud. There's very little in person, Uh, uh, voter fraud. It's to increase public confidence. That's why there are huge majorities of people, including Democrats, including racial minorities that are in favor of of, of voter ID. But anyway, uh, back to H.R. 1. Um, uh, It's it's a federal takeover of election law. Uh, uh, Others uh, on this panel have discussed how uh, our constitution sets up a system where the state's Uh, just like they're responsible for family law and tort law and contract law are responsible for election law and election administration. There are limits on that. They can't uh, discriminate based on race or gender or those under uh, uh, over 18, uh, those sorts of constitutional protections, statutory protections. Um, But here, what the federal government is trying to do is rewrite those state uh, election laws to dictate Uh, how states conduct their elections. And that is whether you call it a a technical legal term commandeering of the states, which the Supreme Court said the federal government cannot do, uh, whether it's a a violation of uh, First Amendment rights in terms of how how the campaign finance system uh, is being uh, rewritten, that part of an H.R. 1. Even the relatively less politicized, less ideological part of H.R. 1 regarding judicial ethics, Um, Congress purporting to tell the Supreme Court how to run itself, that is a problem of separation of powers. So uh, even before we get to uh, differences we may have about uh, how to properly have elections or how to draw district lines, the uh, the mechanism that HR one uses just federal control, kind of a a massive Section five forever, if you will, uh, for uh, election rules. Similar uh, uh, parallels for campaign finance. Uh, that uh, sort of thing uh, subverts the, the the normal operation of our constitutional order with respect to uh, election administration.
1: Thank you for that, uh, Ted. Ilya just made a strong claim. He called HR one a federal takeover of election law. And yet, the Constitution empowers uh, Congress to pass election laws, not only the election clause, which I read, but also uh, the 14th and 15th Amendment, which say Congress shall have the power to enforce these provisions by appropriate legislation. Congress has exercised that power when it banned the use of literacy tests in the Voting Rights Act. And of course, the Voting Rights Act of 65 itself was a dramatic federal intervention into elections which states upheld so do you agree with Ilya that uh, parts of the HR1 are unconstitutional and and maybe you can make a, a defense of HR1 uh, on constitutional grounds
0: yeah so here's here's what I think and and it sort of follows from my previous comment um, we we have because of the way elections are administered we have, a number of different rules and regulations depending on where you live, on whether on how you participate and whether you can participate, et cetera. And so when you have for this basic fundamental right of citizenship, Um, maybe uh, rights guaranteed by state constitutions, but not affirmatively affirmatively, um, uh, guaranteed by the constitution, as Kim mentioned, Um, that is not good for democracy. For people, depending on what their latitude and longitude is, they have a different set of, of rules on how they can participate in democracy. And so while states should retain that authority largely, I think it is okay for Congress to create a baseline for participation in our democracy. And the argument for HR1 is that that's what it's trying to do. Uh, And so you can disagree with the tactics for trying to baseline participation, uh, for trying to um, baseline ease of access. Uh, That's fine, but the principle that um, that participating in our democracy should be something the federal government makes easier for everyone, no matter what state or town or city they live in, I think is the right principle. The other part of this is that um, while the Constitution is very clear uh, that racial discrimination is unconstitutional, at, at least in our present reading of it, it didn't used to, you know, the interpretation wasn't always that, that clear as it is us today. Uh, partisan, uh, discrimination or partisan gerrymandering or setting rules that bake in partisan advantages is something the Supreme Court as of just two years ago said, you know what, that's not a matter for the courts to figure out. If the people don't like what their partisan behaving state assemblies are doing. All they have to do is vote those people out of office. And of course, the problem is if you have state assemblies that are losing the popular vote, and holding on to the majorities and state assemblies, the people have to work extra hard to tell the state that they don't like what the what the government what the government is doing. People should not have to bear that burden. People should be able to participate, and the state be responsive. I mean, it, it is in our declaration, right, that that uh, government derives its power from the consent of the governed. And if the government makes that consent extremely difficult to provide, um, that should not be something we stand. Stand pat for it. We shouldn't be okay with that. So I think what HR 1 is trying to do, uh, away from the technocratic details of of each of the provisions, is create a baseline of participation that allows people, Americans, no matter where they are in the nation, to have some level of confidence that their participation will be no more difficult or no easier than their fellow compatriots the next state over. Uh, And so for, for those reasons, I think it is absolutely in line with the principles the nation was founded on and absolutely. In line with the principles of a pro-democratic society and whether or not some of those proposed um, measures that are in in the uh in the bill may fall short of that or or exceed it is is a debate i wish Congress would have. Instead, we are having a very partisan debate in in the House, or had one, and we'll probably have, um, to whatever extent a real debate happens in the Senate, it will be partisan, uh, which is to say that the very problem undermining a lot of our um, conversations about democracy may prevent our ability to facilitate participation. Uh,
1: Rich, do you agree with Ted's uh, strong statement that uh, it's a basic principle of democracy, that, that Congress should have the power to make it Easier to vote, and then tell us what you think about the constitutional arguments about HR one. Uh, C. Boyden Gray in Newsweek said that Congress has only a secondary concurrent power over congressional elections and an even smaller role in presidential elections, and no specific role in state elections. So, what what provisions, if any, of HR one do you think are Unconstitutional. And then I'll just throw in the question if Congress were to pass the John Lewis Act, which would restore ability to uh, require pre clearance uh, for voting changes in states that discriminated on the past, as a policy matter, uh, do you think that that would be a a good or bad idea?
3: So, the constitutional question I think clearly some of the the speech and campaign finance regulations would be vulnerable on free speech grounds. I, I think the Uh, The the electors clause, which gives the states uh, wide-ranging authority to determine how electors are chosen is going to be a big problem for a a lot of this law. I just think it's a bad idea. It's Clearly, it's going to federalize elections to an extent unprecedented in our history, take away the the power of states to draw congressional districts that they've had for 200 years, So this is this is a a radical measure. And, you know, I'd be willing to consider it if if it were clear what problem it was addressing. Uh, But there's not a problem. We don't have a vote suppression problem uh, in America. We just don't. Turnout has been up again. If you go to Georgia, which has been the poster boy, supposedly, supposedly for voter suppression. It has had looser rules than a lot of blue states. I mean, it, it adopted no excuse absentee balloting, I think, 15, 15 years ago, early voting. 12 years ago, automatic registration, I think in 2016, online registration, just a couple of years ago. And these are provisions that a lot of blue states uh, haven't adopted or are much slower to adopt. So uh, there's just just, just not a problem with having access to the ballot uh, in America. And you look across all states, the tendency has been towards making more uh, means of voting more readily, uh, available, and I think reasonable people can disagree about whether these are are uh, worthy uh, measures. But that's that's been the that's been the the tendency. So I, I think the whole voter suppression thing uh, doesn't accord with reality, and it is basically based on on a moral panic. And I would op- oppose. I'm I'm not sure I supported the Supreme Court's decision to throw out um, pre-clearance, or or at least the um, uh, the test for for what localities it it, it applied to. Um, but I think, as a policy matter, uh, that was that's the the right um, th- that that was the the right measure, and I, I wouldn't support reimposing it. Um, Georgia just does not; it's not a vote suppression state. It's not experiencing Jim Crow 2.0. It's doing just fine uh, the way every other state has forever. Um, in in uh, um, uh, well, not I shouldn't say forever because obviously there's a huge problem when there was actually was. A voter dis- disenfranchisement, but that's just not happening today. It's just not. And if it, if it were, I would oppose those measures. But you know, Jim Crow, you you had um, you know ninety percent of African Americans disenfranchised in in certain states. Every single measure was pretextual, obviously, to stop African Americans from from voting, and just uh, uh, tweaking your voting system to make it more secure and deal with problems that people have long complained about. It's just nothing like that, and it's it's a lie to say so. Uh, at least if you know what you're talking about, it's a lie. A lot, I think a lot of people are misinformed. So HR one is is uh, addressing what is clearly a non problem.
1: Kim, so Richard said HR one is addressing a non problem that there's no serious voter suppression problem, and therefore no need to address it uh, federally. Uh, And what's your response? And at this point in the debate, we've we've learned that the Supreme Court has said that Congress's attempts to address uh, voter discrimination through Section 5 were unconstitutional. It may be unsympathetic to efforts to challenge these laws under Section 2. So Congress comes in and says, well, the only way we can get at voter suppression is through this uh, H.R. 1 provision. Uh, But that, even if it passed, which it won't, might be challenged, parts of it is unconstitutional. So Um, is Congress left without a remedy for voter suppression? And and do you agree with uh, Rich that that's okay because voter suppression is not a problem?
4: Well, one thing that's coming out of this conversation, which actually I think is heartening, is that there's more uh, consensus than disagreement about a few things. And that is, I I would assume everyone on the call agrees that even if it's not expressed in the original constitution, the Supreme Court has long held that the right to vote is implicit as preservative, of all other rights. The idea being if you can't pick your pick your bosses or pick your elected officials it's no longer a representative democracy somebody else is deciding government. So so we all hold up some measure of access to the ballot as really fundamental and central to American democracy. Now, the debate between the role of the states versus the role of Congress, I think the devil is definitely in the details. But just so people are clear on the call, I mean, the listeners, many, many federal laws have been passed. Uh, the Civil Rights Act, in four different provisions of its uh, iterations, voting rights uh, legislation, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, Voting Accessibility for the Elderly and Handicapped, 1984, Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act, 1986, National Voter Registration Act, 1986. 93, Help of America Vote Act 2002, Military and Overseas Voting Empowerment Act of 2009. These are under Republican and Democratic uh presidents. And a lot of these are about making it easier to vote, right? So that grandma doesn't have to go out in a pandemic and, you know, get an Uber or whatever or get somebody to help her um, you know, other countries where it's an opt-out system like like Australia, it's in the ninety percentile. People vote, and it's a party. It's on a Saturday. It's a it's a rite of, of sort of uh, a moment of celebration of democracy. That is my vision for this. I would love to see that happen. HR one includes things like. Vote by mail, highly, highly popular. Five states did it almost exclusively prior to the pandemic. The voter participation rates are higher, including for Republicans. It's good for regular people. It makes life easier. A paper trail, mandatory paper trail, HR1, so that we wouldn't be relying on machines. And guess what? The machines are usually in the hands of third party vendors who are out to make money. They're not even regulated by government. So, government is hijacked by private entities. Those are, you know, some of those machines are old. The equipment can't be updated. So, HR1 would say, you know what, you need a paper trail. So, we can. We can make sure that elections have integrity. Issues like gerrymandering, um, I, I have some views on that. I don't think we have time to talk about that. I think it should be fixed because uh, it should be voters picking their politicians, not politicians picking their voters. There are provisions on cybersecurity. We should all like that. Um, keeping foreigners out of our elections. We should all like that. Um, uh, having presidents and vice presidents Turn over their information about their financial interests, their tax returns, enforcing ethics rules against government officials, transparency in advertising. Um, I mean, there's dark money out of politics. There seems to me there's a lot that both sides could coalesce around if we shifted the debate and not had it be around lies about voter suppression and lies about the big lie, which is that uh, Joe Biden's an illegitimate president. I would love, and I, I, I encourage everyone to get out in public and just like Ilya just did um, and and say no the, the the election in 2016 or 2020 was according to empirically the one of the safest if not the safest election in the history of America and we should all feel really good about the millions and millions and millions of regular people who not only voted, but volunteered at the polls, worked the polls, managed these elections. They are my heroes. They are not partisan. They're not red. They're not blue. They're not politicians. And that's what we should galvanize and, and circle around. And I think, again, that's that that's not a partisan thing we can be consistent in the messaging across the board that there really is not a problem problem with ballot security in America that is not real but let's tweak the the pieces that maybe there are problems to make it easier for everybody to participate in our democracy and to me I don't see that as political
1: thank you very much Kim for finding some areas of common ground among all four of you in this really rich discussion of a very tough uh, area and I'm grateful to the spirit of uh, all of your comments. So for this last round, I'm gonna ask each of you to propose um, a guardrail for democracy that you think could resurrect Madisonian deliberation and democratic values. The Constitution Center has an initiative to identify these guardrails, many of which have been undermined by social media, by polarization and other forces. And just in a few sentences, because we only have uh, seven minutes left and we always end on time, I'm going to ask each of you, uh, please identify um, one guardrail that you think would help uh, improve the uh, workings of American democracy. Uh, First to you, Ilya.
2: Sure. Um, I mean, first, uh, I, I can't resist. Kim. Kim had a whole list of things that she claims are non-ideological or just neutral, good government uh, reforms. I'm not going to go through the list, but I disagree with most of it. So I, I don't. I think it is controversial, uh, and so you can't just wave away and define your own uh, provision as. Your own provisions, as as you know, the kind of shouldn't be debated. But anyway, my one guardrail, one my one reform is to look at how Florida administered its elections in 2000. After Bush v. Gore, Florida was a laughingstock for a whole host of reasons. But then, uh, under the leadership of the uh, the Jeb Bush administration, this is over 15 years ago now, they put in a uh, a lot of reforms. One of which would have been so helpful in the 2020 election, and that's to get all those absentee mail and other unusual. Uh, uh, ballots counted on election night. Florida, a swing state, a huge state uh, with two time zones and you know, just millions of people, uh, managed to get its result in and certified before everyone went to bed. I mean, it was great. Every state should have that, and no state should have the, its own state Supreme Court rewriting the rules within a week before the election and all of those kinds of shenanigans, that sort of behavior and that kind of lack of clarity and direction, whether in a COVID year or otherwise, it is what uh, led to a lot of the distrust over the results that we were getting, uh, it coming in dribs and drabs over days uh, after the election. So count the votes on election night. Make sure the early ones coming in get counted when they come in.
1: Count the votes on election night. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Ted, what reform would you propose as uh, a guardrail for American democracy?
0: Yeah, no, this is a hard question um, because there is no silver bullet. Um, I think that the easiest thing to do is automatic voter registration. I mean, when I turned 18, the Selective Service said, hey, sign this card or you don't get access to a whole bunch of stuff. The government provides like loans and, and uh, you know, you get dinged on job applications, et cetera. But nothing showed up around voting at all. I had to go seek out how. And this is, you know, in the 90s, this is before the Internet was around. I had to go figure out how to go. Where do I go? Where do I get the paperwork? What do I do? And so I think just as, you know, in, in a democratic society, That uh, when you cross the threshold to voting age, um, it should be super easy for you automatically to be added to the roles and the maintenance of it, the efficiency of the role, the accuracy of it. That's government's job to make sure it's uh, it's there and oversight will be there to make sure the job is done well. But um, people should not have to do extra work. Just to participate in our democracy when voting is so fundamental to our society. So if that was the one thing I could recommend, it would be that. Following very closely behind that, which I won't go into, are things like, you know, more civic education, which has become a bit of a trite proclamation now because it's needed so much, but also deliberative democracy, compelling people to actually deliberate with people they disagree with, and then come up with binding decisions at different levels of government, so that everyone is invested in our democracy. Free to make free, then, um, then you know, put your cards on the table and let's have have. a discussion about how we can make our country
1: stronger. Thank you very much for that. Automatic voting registration is a powerful suggestion. And civic education is never a trite suggestion. And the National (laughs) Constitution Center is eagerly standing by to provide that constitutional education for America. And thanks to all of you for doing precisely that in this great discussion. Rich, what is your proposed reform to resurrect the guardrails of American democracy?
3: Well, in terms of voting, if I could wave a mag- magic wand, I would cut way back on mail voting, no excuse to absentee voting, make in-person voting the gold standard, make it a holiday, uh, election day, a holiday to make it easier for people to show up in person. But in-person voting should be the gold standard. It's more, <clears throat> it's private, uh, it's secure, it's much more foolproof than absentee uh, voting. And I think there, there's something to be said for the ritualistic aspect of <clears throat> having everyone doing and making this this momentous choice uh, to the extent they can on, on the, the same day altogether in the same way.
1: In-person voting. Thank you very much for that. Kim, the last word in this great discussion is to you. What guardrail would you like to leave our listeners with to resurrect American democracy?
4: Well, constitutional amendments are close to impossible to achieve because it takes both houses, two thirds of both houses of Congress and two thirds or three quarters ratification of the states. But I think an amendment to this constitution to actually enshrine the right to vote would clarify things and be a shot across the bat. We shouldn't be debating whether the right people should be exercising their right to vote. I agree with Rich, if it were a day, if it were a day and it was mandatory in-person voting and we use pencil and paper, but the numbers were up high, I'd be totally fine for that. Um, I would love to see the numbers in the 80s Nineties percentile, and I think it would shift a lot of things around politics. Too much of it is determined by people in power. That, as our framers of the Constitution understood, there uh, it's human nature to want to amass it and entrench it, and ultimately abuse it. And the more we keep the power in the people, the better it is. So, um, I would like to see less power in entrenched politicians around access to the ballot, which is both a state. Local and federal issue, but my number one thing would be encouraging people to vote. I've been asked by Politico and other places to weigh in on this. Uh, I don't think a penalty like it happens in Australia would be the way. But what about a tax credit, a fifty bucks if you can show that you voted? Uh, If this were something that people did, like have their coffee in the morning and hold their kids' hand when they cross the street. I think if it were just part of what you do, you pay your taxes, not because the IRS has this force that comes banging on your door, but because it's just what you do. Um, And if we could shift the conversation around policy, how how we want our politicians to be making laws and not around access to the ballot, uh, I think that would be a terrific thing. And if more people voted, maybe we could finally do that.
1: Constitutional amendment and a tax credit to encourage voting. Thank you for that, and thank you so much, Ilya Shapiro, Ted Johnson, Rich Lowry, and Kim Whaley for a model of a civil dialogue about a controversial and crucially important constitutional and legal question, namely the boundaries of the right to vote. Thanks to you, friends, for taking an hour in the middle of your day to educate yourself about the Constitution, and please join us on Thursday when we're going to have another great discussion, should we have a third Reconstruction. Ilya, Ted, Kim, Rich, thanks so much. Thanks to you, friends. Bye, everyone. This
0: program was presented in partnership with the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University and made possible with support from the Stavros Niarchos Foundation. This episode was produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Tanea Tauber, Lana Ulrich, and John Guerra. It was engineered by Dave Stotts. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.